This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Perfect song for this time of the year. Nelson Riddle's famous orchestra. Summer wind came blowing in from across that sea. It lingered there, then it touched your hair, and it walked with me all summer long. We sang a song and then we strolled on the golden sand. Two sweethearts, sweethearts and the summer wind Like painted kites, all the days and the nights They went flying by The whole world was new Beneath the bright blue umbrella sky Then softer than that piper man One day it called to you Then I lost you, I lost you To the summer wind The autumn winds and the winter winds They have come and they've gone Still those days, those lonely days, they go on and on. And guess who sighs his lullabies to all the nights that never end. My fickle friend, the summer wind. That summer wind The summer wind You're listening to the Electric Sheep Film Show on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch And the track you've just heard was Summer Wind by Frank Sinatra, one of a handful of Las Vegas-themed songs featured in the soundtrack of Blade Runner 2049. Having been associated with Electric Sheep magazine for over a decade, it's my great pleasure that finally in today's radio show, I'm getting to interview the man who adapted to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick, for the screen as Blade Runner in the late 1970s, Hampton Fancher. I'm also talking to Fancher about his script for the sequel, Blade Runner 2049, and the two other films that he wrote, The Mighty Quinn and The Minus Man, the latter he also directed. However, in the first half of the show, I'm talking to filmmaker Alex Cox. As well as directing a number of classic cult movies over the last 30 years, 
Cox is well known as a film historian, having penned titles on all aspects of filmmaking, his own output and his love of spaghetti westerns. His latest book, I Am Not a Number, Decoding the Prisoner, is a look at the classic 1967 TV show featuring Patrick McGowan. In this book, Alex Cox presents a potential solution to the mystery of just who number six is in the context of The Prisoner. So I spoke to him about the book in question, as well as a couple of films from his back catalogue, Three Businessmen and his adaptation of Borges's Death and the Compass, which have somewhat a Prisoner vibe to their aesthetic and themes. I'm talking to Alex Cox. Uh, we're at the BFI, uh, where Alex is going to be doing a Q&A tonight with Mark Mode about his various projects. And last night you were at a celebration of 50 years of The Prisoner at Elstree. Yes, and I'd never been to Elstree Studios ah. before, so that was very exciting. Because the street outside, of course, is the street from The Girl Who Was Death. Mm. So as yes. soon as you come out of the railway station, you start walking up that rather ugly street, and you think, well, where do I know this from? And yeah. it's, it's, the, it's where he meets Potter when Potter is pretending to be a shoeshine boy. Yeah. Well, I guess it's that thing with filmmaking that people will always take opportunities that, you know, even outside the studio, if there's an interesting location, you know, let's use it. Well, it looks like, I mean, we always thought in the early days that The Prisoner was all shot in Port Marion, but of course really only the first four episodes were shot mm. there. And then after that, it was MGM. Yeah. All shot at MGM with a few inserts from Port Marion. Mm. And they had two back lots. They had two French... Loca- two sort of French town locations that they mm-hmm. used repeatedly and, and a lot of woodland mm. and that's what we see in The Prisoner the later episodes and, and of course stuff on the sound stages stuff they well, built on the yes. stages of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah definitely so uh, the reason you were attending this 50 years uh, event is because you've written a book called I Am Not a Number um, which is your theory about who the prisoner is based on the information that we have in each episode in talking about the prison, you've mentioned in the past that you saw it when it was first broadcast at the tender age of 12 and it made a, a big impression on you. But in terms of writing this book, when, when did you think, I'd like to do some kind of exploration of the prisoner, some kind of like examination of what it may or may not be about? Almost 10 years ago, I met the American distributor of the Blu-ray disc, hmm. the Blu-ray set. Yeah. And this guy said, oh, you like the prisoner? Here. And he gave me a Blu-ray set. No, I didn't have a Blu-ray player. And so the set just sat on my shelf. And then beginning of last year, I thought, this is crazy. You know, I've got to, I've got to watch these, you know, and, but I don't have a Blu-ray player. So, or a tally. Mm. But I do have a computer monitor with RCA jacks on the back. Mm. And I, th- I wondered if I could find mm. a, um, an ancient Blu-ray player with RCA jacks, because they don't have those anymore. Yeah. In the pawn shop of PAWN, <laughs> um, among the guns and guitars, I found an antique Blu-ray player. Huh. I took it home, plugged it into the monitor, and watched all the episodes in the broadcast order. Mm. And I'd, never, I'd seen a couple of episodes in color before, but I'd never seen all the episodes in mm. color, or all in sequence that way. And so that was fascinating. And of course, then I thought, well... How would it be if I watched the episodes since through my reading, I realized that when they began the prison and nobody really knew how it was going to turn out mm. and, and it was a process of discovery during the filming, I thought, well, what, what if I watched all the episodes in production order? Yeah. And I did. And, and I feel they make more sense that way. Mm. And so my, the thesis of my, of my modest book is watch the episodes 
in the order in which they were made and you'll be able to figure out what prisoner means. Yeah. And that was what I did. And then I approached uh, my friend Ian Mills, who runs Old Castle Books, and said, would you be interested in a book about the prisoner with this as the thesis? And he said, yes, but hurry up because it's the 50th anniversary year. Mm. <laughs> nice. So I hurried up and wrote this book. Mm. And I guess, certainly in reading the book, it almost feels like you want to dispel some of the assumptions, some of the myths about the prisoner, because everyone always goes, oh, he's a spy who was, you know, uh, taken to this village because people want to know his spy secrets. But you actually, and I'm not going to say how the book ends because people should go and buy it, uh, but you come up with a very different theory. You know, he is obviously someone with secrets, but from a very different profession that we might not expect, and the clues are there. And, and the clues are there because if you watch the episodes and you meet the prisoners, mm. the genuine prisoners aren't spies. Mm. The fake prisoners, the double agents who always betray him are spies mm. or, the, or, or claim to be spies like mm. Nadia. But the people who are there full time and don't get to leave, well, I can, I can say this, they're all kidnapped scientists. Mm. They're like the professor... Yeah. or the rook in Checkmate, mm. or that poor, that poor drunken man down, in the, uh, down underground yeah. in Free For All mm. who writes his formulas on the blackboard. Mm. They're all kidnapped scientists. Mm. So that's... I saw, so and watching the series in the order in which the episodes were made, that led me in the direction that I ultimately took. Mm. And also aspects of the making of the prisoner like the reuse of certain actors in different roles the disappearance of uh, Fionella uh, Fielding who does the voiceover halfway through you know just thinking about things like that I mean those sort of things probably just happen because of the nature of filmmaking saving a bit of money there who was available there and just kind of almost adding to the surreality of it but what if those things actually have an additional other meaning which I thought is, you know, a fascinating thing to do. Yeah, because I think we have to take the episodes on their face value. Mm. Um, he never says his name, so we can't assume that he's John Drake. Mm. He never says he was a spy, so we can't automatically assume he was a spy. Fenella Fielding is the voice of the village for several episodes and then suddenly is gone, mm. and a male voice takes over. And around about the same time... The guys in the stripy shirts, rovers, devotees, mm. take a back seat to the white helmets. Mm. At a certain point, the white helmets, when they're white uniforms, the NATO guys come mm. in. Mm. And so I wonder if in the village itself there's been regime change. Yeah. And that explains the absence of Fenella and the sidelining of the stripy shirt guys. Mm. In terms, and there's, and there's no guns in the village yeah, either, are yeah, there? At yeah. the beginning, the guns only appear very near the end when the white helmets appear. Yeah. Hmm. Um, which I guess is like the increased militarization, you know, um, and aspects like that. But anyway, uh, thinking of the prisoner as being a seminal text for you, you know, uh, you saw it at the age of twelve in flickery black and white, and then presumably came across it in color at a later age. Um, even when you saw it for the first time, was there something about it that just struck you as being more visionary and more innovative than the other kind of action-adventure shows that were on at the same time? Completely. Completely. I mean, the other stuff was pretty predictable, wasn't it? If you watched 
an action adventure show like The Man from Uncle. Mm. It was pretty predictable. It was pretty one sided. Mm. Um, I remember I applied for a thrush card <laughs> um, because when the series, when The Man from Uncle began on British TV, we were told we could apply for a, an uncle or a thrush card. So I applied for the thrush card. And then I got a letter from the director general of the BBC saying, you cannot apply for thrush cards. We are sending you an uncle card instead. And because we can't support the Russians, we have to support the Americans. Mm-hmm. And, and then I saw the prisoner. And the prisoner is, wait a minute, the prisoner is suggesting that they're all the same and that it doesn't really matter who runs the village. As Leo McKern says, mm-hmm. because we're all the same in the end and our project is to turn the whole world into the village. Mm. Yeah. That's pretty frightening. Yeah. And and it unfortunately seems to be the case. Yeah. No, well and actually I think apart from the aesthetics and the weirdness and the performance, it's aspects like that that continue to make the prisoner relevant. I mean we almost seem to be living in an Orwellian world where all of the world leaders just want to keep us in a state of fear of potential nuclear war. But you think this is actually just because of these egregious personalities who are almost willing it into existence. And so both sides do start to become the same. And, and, and it's interesting because although, as, as you say, ultimately it's, we, we, live, we live in a world of, yes, perpetual war. We live in the perpetual war against East Asia, East Asia Oceania, whoever. It, you know, it doesn't really matter yeah. as long as we're at war with somebody. Russians gone, okay, drugs, drugs, no more, okay, terror, you know, but we've got to be at war because we've got to justify these military budgets and vast amounts of money that certain people are making off of war. And again, the prisoner tends to suggest to those who observe it that it is a scam, Mm. that we're being scammed. Um, My favorite episode probably is free for all. For that reason, because it says that electoral democracy itself is just a game that's mm. played on the prisoners yeah. to keep them busy and to keep them in a perpetual frenzy. You know? mm. And as soon as the election's over, they don't care anymore. Yeah. The prisoners, once, once McGowan's elected, the prisoners are, you know, <laughs> they're not interested in him anymore because they've done, they've voted, that's it. They know nothing's going to change. Yeah. <laughs> and thinking of the aesthetics um, of the prisoner being potentially an influence on your own work I mean last night I mentioned to you perhaps you know um, in one of your early films Repo Man when the characters go into a shop and all of the products just have very kind of bland generic packaging do you think that's maybe the sort of thing that filtered into your subconscious you know I it must have to a certain extent although when I was in Los Angeles I actually encountered all these generic products for real in the supermarket because Ralph's supermarket had introduced a series of blank cans with a blue stripe that said, they didn't say food on them, (laughs) but they did say like beans or cornflakes, you know, that was it, you know, a white package with just the description of the food within. And so maybe that triggered the the prisoner memory. Mm. But I think more than that, because my my aesthetic, I think, in the end, is more of a grunge aesthetic, mm. is more of a kind of kind of everything being really broken and and, and kind of second rate. Whereas mm. everything in the prisoner is lovely on the surface. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're actually invited to walk on the grass. You know, it's a great mm. place mm. on the surface. <laughs> you know, everybody happy, everybody smiling, everybody well dressed in a funny outfit and a cape or a hat. But behind that, these terrible medical experiments and torture mm. operations are going on. Mm. So it's a kind of a combination of the Huxley and the Orwell world. Mm. But thinking of people wearing beautiful clothes and funny hats and funny costumes, 
it does make me think of your film Death and the Compass. Um, I think it, that was as much looking perhaps towards comic books, but also thinking of your book on the prisoner and the prisoner itself being a kind of esoteric mystery that the audience is trying to solve. In Death and the Compass, you have a policeman who almost creates his own mystery out of false clues and then tries to create a solution to it. So there seems to be some kind of connection there as well. It could be, and I think that Borges really is a good um, is a good homologue for the prisoner in a certain way because Borges's stories are so short but so complex mm. and so referential, and every single short story by Borges is its own individual world, mm. and that was the genius of McGowan mm. to make that perfectly enclosed and almost entirely consistent world mm. and looking at it now I am more impressed by McGowan as a writer and director mm. than I am uh, by McGowan as an actor he's a very mm. good actor mm. but his genius mm. was to conceive or co-conceive the series with George Markstein mm. really direct most of the episodes himself mm. um, write several episodes, produce the whole show, and ultimately, after Mark Stein left, bring it to its insane conclusion. Mm, mm. So I think McGoom was a genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But as we're at the BFI, I, I, I don't mind plugging their product a little bit because they did release uh, Death and the Compass on, on yes, DVD. Um, uh, in a more attractive package than the initial DVD release, which is actually incredibly frustrating if you come across the single film, because on the back they give the game away. And I'm, I'm going to oh, white do. noise this out, where they say um, the character Zunz is played by... The character Gryphius is played by... And Red Scarlack is played by... And you think, oh my God. Oh, You've just, <laughs> you have literally given the game away on the back of the DVD. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but that film I, I, I find is fascinating because it is that idea of trying to map an impossible place. Yes. You know, um, both within uh, the villa at the end and almost within the city and the outskirts of the city, trying to make order out of chaos. I mean, where did that sort of interest come you know, to you in terms of a filmmaker? Because obviously when you come to Death in the Compass, you have certain ideas on how to approach it. Well, really, when, the, when I was asked to direct... Um, a Borges piece, I was originally told by the BBC that they had the rights to all the stories. And so mm. I said, OK, I'll do the Aleph. Mm. Um, uh, oh, well, that might be a bit difficult. No, it won't. Well, we don't have the rights. Oh, OK, so tell me what rights you do have. And they had a list of about six stories that they had the rights to. Uh, one was Emma Zunz, But of the stories, really, the one that was the most cinematic. Emma Zunz is a very good story, but the, but the one that's the most cinematic and the easiest, from my perspective as the writer-director, was the detective story. Mm. And so I just thought, well, let's do that. You know, we'll do the detective <laughs> story. I've never done a detective story. Mm. But I think you're right. I mean, I think the prisoner, what happens with the prisoner is if you are affected by it, it gets inside you mm. and it doesn't let you go. Mm. And so a lot of what's gone into my films and also what's gone into my interactions with large institutions mm -hmm. is based upon repeated viewings of the prisoner but especially <laughs> that first viewing at the age yeah, of 12 yeah. and 13 mm. <laughs> but also I mean I, I see a kind of a Wellesian influence on Death in the Compass in particularly there are scenes uh, where Peter Boyle and Christopher Eccleston are having a telephone conversation and presumably the way you did it 
is that there's a thin bit of gauze between the two characters. When it's lit from the front and the room behind isn't lit, it looks like a solid wall. But then you turn the light off and light the room behind, and all of a time, all of a second, space collapses and the two rooms become one. Uh, which a is a lovely thing that you don't see on screen very often. It's a very Wellsian, you know, kind of cut. But also, it then kind of predicts the ending of the film, where time and space seems to squash down within the villa. Yes, that's that's right. I mean, I had seen there was a couple of film which wasn't his best film. It's the one with the Tom Waits songs in it. Okay. Do you remember that one? I can't even remember the title anymore. It wasn't very good, but they used that effect. Ah, okay. And I had a friend who worked at American Zoetrope in San Francisco, mm. and so I called him and mm. said, "How did they? How did they do that?" And he said, "Well, this is theatrical scrim material that you can get, and you can actually paint on it. But then, if you if, the, if you drop the lights on it and bring the lights up behind, you can see through it." Mm. And so I found the theatrical scrim material and recreated the effect. But I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that Carpola got the effect from Wells. Mm. But, but in terms of it kind of predicting the ending of the film, was that something that you were thinking about of kind of like space collapsing in terms of the interaction between characters? Maybe so. Hard to remember now. Okay. But <laughs> it was a while ago. <laughs> it was a while ago. But, you know, I think it is it's prisoner-esque as well in the sense mm. that Boyle can never leave. Yes. You know, he's yeah. creating a trap of yes. his own devising yeah. it, while attempting to solve a mystery. Yes. And perhaps that's what happens to McGowan because <laughs> the reason my book is called I Am Not a Number and the not is in brackets is because he really is a number. Yeah. A lot of characters in the series have names. Mm. Angela, um, Cobb. There's mm. a half a dozen characters who are named not mm. just as the colonel or as a number, but with specific names. But the prisoner, despite his insistence that he is not a number, never says his name. Mm. And when he goes back to London, when he escapes from London and tries to identify himself, he's in the body of Nigel Stark at the time, so mm. it's a bit hard for him to convince <laughs> them, he identifies himself by his code number, the code number that he had when he was involved with the British government working on a top-secret project. Mm. And so the prisoner although he claims not to be a number, fights for his numerical status not once but twice Mm. in Schizoid Man (laughs) when they tell him he's number 12 and he insists he's number 6. And in Free For All when he stands for election and wears the rosette with number 6 on it. Mm. So he's deeply complicit in his imprisonment. Mm. And part of my take on that is that he's involved in a ritual in which all the prisoners and all the number twos Mm. and all the guards are involved. Mm. A particular ritual with Mm. a specific purpose and he has something to do and Mm. he does that thing Mm. in Fallout. Mm. Um, Another film of yours that came up in conversation last night as well when you were being interviewed on stage um, is Three Businessmen, where again, time and space seem to collapse. You know, that... um, Uh, your good self uh, playing one of the lead characters and Miguel Sandoval get on a train in Liverpool there's some kind of 14 flicker and all of a sudden they're on a train in Rotterdam but seem to be completely oblivious of this Um, this was written by your wife Todd and the idea of kind of like one city somehow merging into another through common culture or a lack of awareness of a common culture what what sort of ideas do you think you were trying to address in that? Is it that the whole globalization of the city, in a way, being a kind of melting pot of ideas, or again trying to find some kind of sense of place, even when you're completely unaware of where you are? 
I think that what she was trying to get at in that was how ignorant we are. Okay. You know, how, how we don't notice what's going on around us. Mm. And because all, well, three of the cities that we shot in, Rotterdam, mm. Liverpool, and Tokyo were destroyed in the Second World War, mm. there's a lot of architecture in those cities which is kind of similar, this rather international brutalist architecture mm. that came in with the termination of the war. Mm. And so it's very easy to pass from the outskirts of Liverpool to the outskirts of Rotterdam without knowing the difference. Mm. And I think that was the... I think her idea was pay attention. Yeah. You know, look around you, pay attention to where you are. Don't just accept what you're being told, which, of course is what Magoon tells us mm. in The Prisoner, and she's a Prisoner fan too. <laughs> but, it, but it's interesting that your more recent collaborations with Todd are that you've been drawing uh, maps for her books, um, A History of Arcadia. Uh, and it's interesting that if you were to try and map the journey that three businessmen take, it would be impossible, yes. you know, without there being a portal of some kind, unless <laughs> the cities were sort of stacked on top of each other. So I, I don't know, there seems to be this kind of collaboration between you and Todd where it seems to be about mapping impossible spaces. There's some of that in there, isn't there? Um, who's that guy who writes about arcades? Oh. Well, she's very interested in that as well. And funnily enough, Eon Mills, the publisher of Oldcastle, mm. is also very into that, that flaneur concept and the mm. idea of, of, of wandering through spaces that we barely understand or, or, or creating alternative maps. Mm. Um, to the ones that we normally go by, the ones we're handed. And, mm. of course, the prisoner is given a map with no information on it at all mm. Mm. and so has to create his own map, the map in his mm. mind, yeah. in order to escape. <laughs> but in all of the examples that we've discussed, the characters, in a way, are most comfortable when they're in a place that has the veneer of modern civilization. So McGowan in the village, Peter Boyle's character, when he's in his city apartment, yes. and then when he goes out into the kind of post-industrial landscape outside the city, he's out of his depth because he's trying to place order onto chaos. Uh, your characters in Three Businessmen, when they end up in this kind of biblical landscape, and all they can do is basically eat and worship. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're kind of potential of business of yeah but their kind of like identity as businessmen has now become irrelevant yeah i i mean i think the thing is that all what all three say is that we're complicit in our own imprisonment mm. um and at the end of the prisoner when mcgoohan returns to london his credit doesn't say patrick mcgoohan it says prisoner mm. so even though he's jumped aboard his lotus and gone for a spin mm. he's not free mm. I mean, you could look at it differently. You could say, oh, it's just some sour grapes because he didn't get the full 26-part series and he's just taking a, you know, cocking a snook at Lou Grade. But I don't think so. I think he's actually saying, listen, the prison doesn't end mm. in Port Merion. Mm. Yeah. The prison is partially imposed on us by a repressive state and a repressive government, mm. but is also a prison in which we're complicit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and thinking of those maps in Arcadia, how does that process work? I mean, do you... Do you read uh, the book and then try and work it out, or do you have discussions with Todd and she'll go, no, that, that doesn't actually make any sense, the map you've drawn, or is it a bit of both? It's, um, it's really... I take my instructions. You okay. know, I read the book, mm. and I say, what do you want? Um, both for her books and also for Danbert's, Danbert Nobacon's book, um, mm. Three Dead Princes. I just talk to the author and say, well, um, what do you want to see on the map? What, mm. What's where? So in a way, I'm, the illustrator is kind of trying to concretize the ideas of the author. Mm. You know, I don't know if Danbert or Todd had thought out the relationship 
between all the different places in their stories and how mm. far apart they were. Yeah. And as the cartographer, my job is to illustrate it yeah. and to make it clear. Yeah. Um, I love logistics. Okay. And I guess logistics and cartography have got a lot in common, haven't they? Mm. And I love creating order. Mm. It sounds funny, doesn't it? <laughs> but I do. I love creating order, presumably out of chaos. Yeah. But finding some way to make sense of things, whether it's how most efficiently to shoot a film mm. in the least number of days mm. and the least number of locations, or how how to recognize and decode the reality of the prison. Mm. Well, and I suppose, yeah, decoding, I guess, in a way, is the crux of a lot of your films. I mean, your new movie, um, I've only seen the trailer for uh, Rashman Tombstone, but the idea of interviewing six characters who are in the infamous gunfight to try and find out the truth, even when they contradict each other, it is trying to somehow impose order on information that is contradictory. Yes, yes. And I, and I think in, in, in the films that have gone in the past, they've usually been on the side of Wyatt Earp and his brothers mm. and Doc Holliday and against the, uh, the cowboy faction. Um, there was one film made called Doc with Stacey Keach in which the cowboy faction are the heroes and mm. the Earps and, and Doc are not. But in general, films tend to support law and order against, mm. against wildness. Mm. And what I try and do in the film is give them all their voice. Mm. There are times, obviously, when you can tell that people are lying because they're mm. saying things that just don't make sense. But it's hard to judge who's really telling the truth and if there is indeed only one truth or if the truth is subjective based on the information that people possess. Mm. And so I guess that's the, that's the point of, of Tombstone Rashomon is trying to decode that mm. mystery. Yeah. But again, in a way, it ties into when you converted um, Death and the Cumbers from a TV movie into a theatrical film and shot additional footage... Um, with Miguel, you have him looking back on the events, but he's talking about some events that he wasn't present uh, to witness. And so he, again, is trying to decode and make sense of chaos because, you know, his detective actually has brought his own destruction on himself. And how do you justify that as an outside observer who's trying to, you know, write their memoirs as a retired policeman? And also, I mean, Trevor, Trevor Rannis is clearly a liar. I mean, Trevor <laughs> Rannis has been on trial for some kind of corruption and yeah. claimed he can't remember anything. Um, ultimately, is murdered by parties unknown, or he's murdered by the girls from the, from the castle. But He's complicit. Mm. He's complicit in the whole in the whole thing. And maybe that's the other thing that that I feel and that McGowan felt is that we are all complicit. You mm. know, um, nobody gets out alive. <laughs> Alex Cox, thank you very much. Well, thank you. I am not a number by Alex Cox is available now from Camera Books, and you can find more information about the title by going to camerabooks.co.uk stroke prisoner and that's camera spelt with a k the good people at camera have kindly donated a copy of the book which alex signed when i interviewed him and that alongside the two bfi dvd double bills of his films death and the compass straight to hell highway patrolman and three businessmen are part of this year's resonance fm fundraising auction you can find those titles by going to their ebay page tinyurl.com stroke resonance fm auction 
alongside limited edition film posters, a box set of the steampunk graphic novels Freak Angels by John Aggs and Warren Ellis, and a bundle of classic Doctor Who DVDs, including the William Hartnell regeneration story The Tenth Planet, which acts as a prequel to last year's Christmas special with Peter Capaldi, The Green Death with John Pertwee, the Douglas Adams story Sharda, featuring Tom Baker, and a number of Sylvester McCoy and Colin Baker titles, including the latter's storyline Vengeance on Varos, which is signed by actor Nabil Shaban, who played the villain of the piece. All donations to the Resonance FM auction and fundraiser will help keep Resonance on air so that you can continue to enjoy fantastic shows like this one, alongside the likes of Panel Borders, Balling the Jack, Hello Goodbye, Sound Projector, Records Cracked Comic and Curious, and many more. If you enjoyed my discussion with Alex Cox about The Prisoner, you can download our Christmas special looking at 50 years of The Prisoner, which includes my interviews with original Prisoner editors John Smith and Ian Rakoff, who also wrote the Western-themed episode Living in Harmony. That's available as a podcast on our website www.electricsheepmagazine.co.uk-events. To play out the first half of tonight's show, we have a Prisoner-themed song by the 1980s indie band The Times, featuring one-time politician and pop culture icon Ed Balls, with their song I Helped Patrick McGowan Escape. Number six. I'm not a number. I'm a free man. 
listening to the electric sheep film show on resonance 104.4 fm and dab in london in the second half of tonight's show i'm talking to the screenwriter actor and director hampton fancher and we're going to be talking about his screenplays for the movies blade runner and blade runner 2049 based on the classic sci-fi novel do androids dream of electric sheep by philip k dick his amiable script for the Jamaica set crime thriller The Mighty Quinn with Denzel Washington, and his directorial debut The Minus Man, which featured Brian Cox, Alanis Morissette, and Owen Wilson as the titular serial killer. Fancher is also the subject of a new documentary movie called Escapes by the director Michael Almereda, and in this film Almereda follows Fancher's career from his days as a jobbing actor in the 1950s up to the point of his writing the screenplay for Blade Runner, using hundreds of clips from Fancher's career as an actor in dozens of TV shows and B-movies, interspersed with four new interviews with the actor, detailing his relationships with actresses such as Terry Garr and Barbara Hershey, the latter who encouraged him to write the script for Blade Runner in the late 1970s. I watched Michael Almereda's film about you, Escapes, a couple of days ago, and I thought it was fascinating. Where did you see that? that? That was online, or did you get a DVD? I rented it online and watched it. Uh, I plugged my laptop into the TV and watched it that way. I thought well, it was Yeah, a, it's an interesting film. Yeah, I mean, it was a really um, interesting technique he used to find all of those old yeah, clips Yeah, I was surprised. I had no idea what he was up to, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, was, uh, I, was, I was pleased, which was a... A delightful surprise because I didn't expect it. I thought, you know, it would be embarrassing, you know. Yeah. Uh, oneself, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, I wouldn't envy him the editing process. It must have taken him days to find all those clips. And I think he had a lot of... I mean, there's a, uh, there's a woman who has credit for editing mm. and shooting, I think, too. But I think she really worked hard on that thing. And so he... I mean, it was his, you know, insights and his genius as it were but i think he did have some help there yeah because yeah i seen how do you go through all that you know <laughs> i mean he went through a lot of and not only the footage that we did because we did many things so he narrowed it down into those you know he made a structure mm. um but still uh, the, all that other stuff all that tv stuff i can't imagine yeah yeah it's good boring <laughs> yeah well, in in a way, um, the film almost works as kind of a prelude to this interview because it ends with you working on Blade Runner and then doesn't cover the next three films that you wrote, including the one that you directed. So it's nice that actually I'll be able to continue that conversation with you. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, the, the film sort of sets up how you ended up writing Blade Runner. You know, it talks about how your friend Brian Kelly helped you get the rights to it, how Barbara Hershey motivated you to do the adaptation. But I was wondering if you could talk a little about actually the process of adaptation, because the book itself seems quite unwieldy. And obviously you got rid of some of the subplots, like the weird guru that's trying to, uh, you know, convince people of the differences between humans and androids and all of those kind of aspects of kibble and the, the kind of Dickian things that the book is known for, but you turned it into more of this kind of sci-fi film noir. Well, that was the idea, I think. I mean, when I, when I was looking for something to do, I had a friend uh, ask me what I wanted to do, and I said, I, I want to do something commercial, I said to him, and I thought that science fiction would be, you know, it was on the horizon. I just, mm. and, you know, intuitively I got that. And so, I mean, there wasn't any evidence of it, and at that time it was 1975, I think. And, uh, and then he said, oh, science fiction, yeah, read, the, and, he, and I never heard of that book or Dick, and I didn't like the book. I didn't, I'm never, I'm not a Dick fan, but yeah. I just thought that that would be a, a, a you know, a good choice to mm. do something sci-fi. I wasn't interested in doing it myself, writing it or anything. I just thought I was looking for a commercial venture. So I read that book and I saw a through line, um, mm. you know, detective chases androids. And that's, a, that's good. As a, you know, that's something a movie can, you know, can reside in or thrive in. Uh, I didn't want to write it or be too much involved in it. It just wasn't, I didn't think of it as my, you know, it wasn't my ballywick. So, and somehow, you know, over the years, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get the rights and finally my friend did mm. a few years later in Barn Kelly. And so, uh, then I, I got involved and uh, began to like the idea, but it was, uh, I don't know what I'm saying exactly, except I, I saw in the book just that simple through line, mm. you know, structurally of somebody chasing after something. Yeah. And that's, you know, you need that kind of simplicity in a movie and, you know, you know, ABC and, I didn't want to use, I mean, in the first scripts that I wrote, I wrote many drafts, mm. but uh, the first three drafts, and the first draft especially, was very much the book. I used the marriage, I used uh, uh, mercerism, I used Buster Friendly, oh. uh, I, I, you know, and it was, very, it was a very small movie, very compact, very, you know, very interior, and no exterior stuff, and uh, it was an, a very oddball affair mm. and I liked it and I thought it worked and it was crazy and then by the third draft another director had come on before Ridley uh, Robert Mulligan and he, we worked a third draft for Universal mm -hmm. and and then it, it it fell apart and then Ridley came and that was, I think, a fourth draft the first time. And that then it, then it changed completely. Mm. By that fourth draft, I was off the book. And mm. I, like I said, I never loved the book to begin with, except <laughs> there was a couple of things I was using. And, uh, you know, he wakes up in bed with his wife in the beginning of the first draft. Oh, and, okay. you know, there's domesticity and what have you. And there was more than the... Uh, 
you know what turned out to be the you know the replicants there was a there was one or two more of them i think in the beginning mm. so it was quite different and and then um you know then it, then it evolved what it evolved into yeah well in, in someone a... asked me the other day in fact whether or not i had the memory theme in mm. the beginning and i can't remember if that because i only read the book a little i mean i didn't study the book hard mm. and i didn't love the book so i i don't remember the book now uh at all but and i can't remember whether because most of everything was invented finally by the fourth draft mm. i was off the book completely i only was using the void camp test and that was about it okay so i you know i don't remember what was you know if, how much more I used from the book, but there wasn't much, I don't think, by the fourth draft. Hmm. But the movie doesn't have a lot to do with the book, I don't think. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that's quite often the way, if you look at all of the other Dick adaptations, you know, they they seem to be stories that inspire people, that there's some kind of kernel of his, his original story that then is taken in a different direction. Yeah, I, imagine, I mean, any book is a different thing than a movie, of course, different, different creature, but... Uh, and you know, movies have to be freeways and books or cities, you know. Mm. And that was very much the case. So that's a complex book. Yeah. In Escapes, though, Michael shows a uh, a screenshot of one of your drafts. Um, it's not obvious whether it's the first draft or the second or the third, but it's interesting that there's the paragraph about the magnified eye, about the void camp test. About well, that was right in the beginning, yeah. Right, so so elements of your first uh, draft continued right until the um, the shooting script. Yeah, I think uh, I think the shooting script was it's funny. The shooting script uh, is the is the interview with Leon, right? Oh, wait, is that, yeah, the test, the test, the white count test is in, in. It was always towards, not always, not in the first couple of drafts, but after that, that was always right near the beginning, mm. and then. I had a new beginning that wasn't the shooting script, but just before the shooting script, uh, really, and I decided to open another way. And, and I wrote a scene that I loved, and that scene actually turns out to open 2049 uh, the, uh, with um, Sapper Morton, the, the guy he, you know, he interviews in the beginning in the cabin. Ah. Oh. Was that, that that was a new beginning of the old Blade Runner, but I, we we didn't use it. Ah, interesting. And I, and that was what inspired me to write Twenty Forty Nine. Huh. That well, very scene, I mean. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was obviously going to ask you about that in a bit, but I, I read the um, the short story that you made based on that beginning as well um, from your collection, the, right? Uh, the Final Dog, and obviously that's kind of another draft of the story. And the collection was published in 2012. So, were you? Did you feel you needed to get the old version out of your system before rewriting it for the sequel? No, I didn't. I mean, the, that short story was just a fluke. Huh. Had nothing to do with 2049, except that I just finished that. That the, I just completed the, that book of short stories when Penguin asked. They said they had room for one more. Ah. And they wanted me to do one more story, and I was already done with that book, and it was going to go be published. And then I I came up with that idea, and I I pitched it to them. I said, "Listen, I have an old scene from you know original Blade Runner that I've always loved, and I could make a story out of that." And I told them what the scene was, and they liked it. 
And I said, yeah, please write that. And so I, I did write it, as mm. it is in the book you read, mm. and the title story. And when I, it was a Friday when I finished. I don't remember the days, but I remember that day. And I was ju- I was at my desk. I just fi- just finished, you know, the last couple lines of that story. I was like, oh, good, I'm just done now. And I'll send it to them and see if they like it. It's going to go in the book. And right then the phone rang, and it was Ridley. I hadn't talked to him in a few years. And he said, listen, we're interested in doing a new Blade Runner. You got any ideas? Hmm. And I and I walked from the kitchen to where the phone was to the desk, and I and I read him the first paragraph of that story as it is. And he said, come to London, man. Let's talk. You know? <laughs> so that was that. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And on the plane, I was scared. You know, I don't have any ideas except that, you know, the idea of K, you know, card, and and what could it, what could be the through line? You know, what's the, what's the structure going to be? Mm. And then I I I thought of that one thought of, of that there's progeny, you know, mm. there's genesis. Okay. And 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 so we, you know, then I thought, okay, I can talk about have something to talk about. Because huh. um, in an interview with Vulture, Ridley likes to take uh, responsibility for that idea himself. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> good. I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, I don't remember exactly how it went. Sure. You know, Ridley's a genius. He gets great ideas. He gets a million great ideas. And, uh, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, Ridley, think, yeah. thinking of other potential. Well, indeed. I mean, thinking of other potential influences, though, it, it does occur to me that the lead character in Blade Runner 2049 is a Joseph K. So whether there's a bit of Kafka in there as well. Yeah, I didn't mean that. Was, I think that was, I, I don't know whose idea that was. I imagine it was Michael Green, the guy who rewrote oh, it. Oh, okay. But uh, because I didn't, I, you know, that's too smart for me. I didn't come <laughs> up with that. Uh, I mean, I had him, I had him, the, all I did was K-A-R-D. Right. You know, which was a you know, which is a little conceit off Deckard, you know, and I like the idea of a Joker, but you know, card, but um, but that was it, and then they changed it to K, and 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 that must have been Michael Green. I never asked him, huh. but uh, I, mean, I, I didn't meet him until you know, until the premiere of the movie. But but I but he's a very smart guy, and I wouldn't be surprised if he came up with that. Although I don't know that, I mean, he's a very, I mean. I don't know him well, but you know he's academically and you know smart, and he's also got a well-oiled mind. But uh, I I don't know what his literary taste tastes are, but hmm. you know I, I like the idea that he's a Kafka man. But I didn't come up with that. Okay, was it the same then with twenty forty nine as with the original that you wrote a number of drafts and then you passed it on to another writer because you just... no 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 I just wrote. And that is very different. I wrote okay. uh, a treatment, a 40-page treatment, and that was then, the, you know, that was to you know, see, okay, what would this be? So I wrote the treatment. And then the treatment was good, so go ahead, write the screenplay. And I wrote a very short screenplay, very, you know, way too short. I think it was 80 pages, 79 or 80 pages, which is a little thing. Uh, and... I thought it was fine, mm. and I was finished. And they were asking me for a little more in terms of action, and I disagreed, and I thought it was okay, you know, not to do more of that. And 
and and then I knew even before I finished, I said, "You guys, I know what you're going to do. You want me to come up with all this, you know, whatever magic it is I have, and then you'll go somewhere else and get somebody to do. Why don't you go to David Peoples?" I said, "I was serious," so I knew they were going to do that, and mm. I mean, I thought they were going to do it, but. Uh, and and Libby wrote me a letter and he said, thank you so much. I love this thing, and but we're going to go fishing now. And that meant, you know, they were going to look for somebody else who could do more to it. And, and hence, uh, Michael Green. Uh, and so that's, and it was a different, you know, my screenplay is a different kind of movie, I think, than the movie that finally came. Okay. Um, but I mean, it's, you know, it's everybody says it's the same, but it's not. <laughs> you know, I think I don't know. My, my stuff is is is. I don't know how to make a car. <laughs> okay. You know, I make a something ad hoc that nobody knows what it's crazy. You know, I'm not I'm not very good at at uh, I don't know at at at, at architecture. You know. Mm. And so, uh, but I liked it. I mean, I still like that screenplay. Um, and everybody liked it, but and everybody's, you know, complimentary about all that stuff. But it's a different, it's a different creature, I think. Okay. I mean, obviously, one thing that uh, both films share, which presumably is something that you took from the original novel, is both the idea of humanity and being an android being something that is almost indistinguishable once you have some kind of idea of self and then also the idea of the individual being kind of crushed by the city that there's something dehumanizing about that urban environment well that was always the the theme i mean not exactly like that but the but the the sentiment the conviction the belief the fear about the world and what it's turned into slowly but surely over time is has always been the the platform or the foundation of the thing you know that to begin with i mean aside from the through line of the detective follows pirates or whatever mm. um you know to eliminate them, there was a more important uh hook to hang on, which was the world is falling apart because of our greed and our avarice and fear and and selfishness. Mm. And and that the metaphysics of that and the physics of that are w- what w- enabled me to stay with it, mm. you know, because that's a legitimate thing for me. You know, I mean, I'm horrified at a world without birds or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm. It's an ecological consideration, and and it came out of my you know my education. I don't even know academic education, but you know, my experience mm. of watching what I've, what we've all watched, you know, what we've all breathing and seeing and the diminishment of, of this beautiful planet mm. and what it does to everybody spiritually to be, you know, to be a part of that, to be the ugly puppets of that factory. And so that was always, that's always been there. Mm. And in the new one, you know, it was just an extension of that idea. You know, yeah, it's gone. It's got. It's gotten uglier, mm. and it's gotten harder, and and we become harder, mm. crazier, 
and sicker. But also the idea, so that, of, oh, sorry, I just can say just the idea of the city as being a kind of a crucible where the extremes of humanities are trapped as well. Is yeah, where the, the city is this living thing. It's, uh, it's that, I mean, that's what it's always been, you know. I mean, the 19th century, it was different. Hmm. And then finally, it's just, it's just a, a slab, you know, and that's that's what there is. There's no more acorns. There's just it's flat metal. Mm. In fact, the, the second script I called of, of, of the original background, I called it Mechanismo. Mm. And that's kind of what it is. Yeah. And it's a horrifying idea. I mean, it all comes from the 60s for me. I mean, that, you know, what we were in touch with, you know, on our trips, you know, mm. leaning against trees. <laughs> looking at the city yeah you know but also i mean it's been mentioned and it's obvious when you watch the film that certainly an influence on the first movie if not the second as well is um kind of film noir was that always a genre that you were a particular fan of well it, it was a coincidence kind of i didn't in the in the first blade runner like i say it was like the book mm. i mean the, the first draft or two and, but at the same time, at that period in my life, I was reading a lot of Raymond Chandler. Mm. And so I think by this, I don't know, at first he was like, for the book, Deckard was a bureaucrat. The guy wore glasses. And by the third one, or the second one, I remember, he became, I thought, no, that, man. This guy's <laughs> Robert Mitchum. <laughs> and I wanted Mitchum. I mean, in fact, Mitchum was going to do it when Robert Mulligan was going to direct it. Mm. And... Uh, and he was in an old, you know, washed up, washed out, you know, disaffected detective, a noir guy. Hmm. And that's, and I, as soon as I came on that, I, oh, now I got the voice, you know. And, I mean, it, it worked then. Hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, impositional, you know, arbitrary kind of just you know trying to get the thing done it, it, it had a, a it took on a life mm. you know where, where there was a voice you know i knew deckard was then you know because he was marlowe you know <laughs> yeah. and i could and i liked him i could i could see him i could make him talk mm. well and and um that that's how that i was just a, it was just a, a serendipity of you know you know, Dick meets um, Noir, you know. Hmm. But it's interesting that the next film that you wrote, um, The Mighty Quinn, was also a detective novel, albeit, you know, a very different kind of environment. It's Jamaica in the present rather than L.A. in the future. But again, it's kind of a, a detective who has kind of ambiguous relationships with women, is searching for someone, but yeah. also has kind of a relationship with the person he's searching for. So there is kind of certain themes, some kind of commonality between the two. I think mean, you're right. I never thought of that, but... Yeah, and it was, it, you know, that was a fluke. I mean, it was just that, uh, that was a book that that MGM, I think, owned, and they wanted me to do it, and I didn't want to do it. I, I didn't, I, I I actually didn't read the book. <laughs> uh, I didn't want to do the whole thing, but they made a deal with me to do something else I wanted to do, and if I would do that, they would do what I wanted to do. Mm. And so I, I did it. But I, I told them also, I said, I'm not going to do the book. The book is terrible. I read the first six pages of it. I said, I can't do it. No, no. You know, this is too terrible. And uh, and they knew that. And, I mean, they were fun. You know, I said, okay, fine. Just do something. And mm -hmm. so I made that up. But, uh, you know, it stands to reason. Okay, the formula works. You know, a cop. Mm -hmm. 
and I was up and I don't remember, but that, I I like that script. I remember that the movie. I didn't think you know didn't work as well as the script, but hmm. the script was a, a deeper affair. I thought. Okay. Um, and the and the movie was was kind of you know the, I mean Denzel wasn't supposed to play that part. It was a it was a guy who was overweight and wanted to be white, you know. <laughs> and I wanted uh, who's the guy that was in Lethal Weapon? I wanted him. Oh, okay, Danny Glover. Danny Glover. Huh. I had Danny Glover, and Alan Ladd Jr. wouldn't do it. And I remember screaming at him one time. I said, "What? Why?" And he said, "Because no one wants to f- Danny Glover." <laughs> I said, "Okay, okay." because <laughs> yeah, I wanted Denzel to play the crazy guy yeah. mm. but it, it's interesting that there is almost a homoerotic relationship between him and the guy that he's chasing which adds an additional tension that you don't normally have in that kind of movie yeah I mean he wants to be him mm. it's a, I mean there's a similar thing I mean in a way I mean the, the great thing of course I mean what's lacking in Blade Runner 2 is, is Batty yeah. you know I mean, that character is so, I mean, here we've got a cop who we love, and he's our son, our father, whatever, brother. But then there's the hero, you know, mm. the avatar, you know, Rutger. Yeah. And that other thing, too, is with, you know, this overweight cop looking for this guy, he'd rather be Malby, you know, and, and Mighty Quinn. Mm. Uh, Sandy Lieberson's a, a, a dear friend of mine. Uh, he was—he's the guy that that basically saved the Mighty Quinn because it was in even worse shape before he—he—he huh. he, he did the second um, edit on it after MGM had done theirs. Ah, interesting. Huh. Yeah, he's a great—he's a great person, I think, Sandy Leverson. And then the third film you wrote, The Minus Man, uh, you also directed as well. And again, that's quite an unusual You've film. You've done your homework, man. Well, you know, I, 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 I'm a fan of your work. What can I say? Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's quite an unusual depiction of a serial killer, that he's, he's good-looking, he's likable, uh, the audience associates with him as much as they can, although he kind of shuts himself off emotionally from everybody. And even though he kills people, all the people he kills and all the lives that he wrecks are on a path of self-destruction anyway. Mm-hmm which I thought was, you know, a really interesting approach to that kind of um, story. The thing that fascinated me about that, I mean, the, the bottom line part of it, or the foundation part of it, is I could never, I was reading, you know, when I was doing that, you know, writing that, I was reading a, a, a book about the camps, World War II, called Into That Darkness. Hmm. Trying to figure out, you know, because that's an interview with the the commandant from Treblinka, okay, by the journalist who wrote the book, hmm. and I can you know we all I mean you me everybody anybody who thinks about anything is thinking about how can we do this with each other how can we how can there be a Trump how can hmm. there be a Hitler you know I mean am I that I maybe maybe I am you know maybe I would do that what would I do if I was you know, a blonde in 1937 in Nazi Germany, mm. and what I joined, you know, and that 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 marriage of good and evil. I mean, say marriage because you can't have one without the other. I mean, one defines the other. I mean, if you want to go into it logically, and so that's like a the conundrum that's that's 
you know, the world's riddle. Hmm. And and I and the idea of of exemplifying that in some little way by having this beautiful, you know, it, well, you know, Psycho did it in a way, right? Mm. Yeah. I mean, that Tony Perkins character, that guy was so good. He was so sweet, you know? He was, I mean, look in his eyes. Mm. You know, he had warmth and humor and, 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 and grace and, and simplicity and innocence. Mm. Whoa. <laughs> and so, you know, we invent the devil and we invent you know, guardian angels and God and all that, you know? <laughs> so that idea is really, that's, 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 that's it. Mm. And, and minus man got to participate a little in some way, you know, in that ocean. Mm. But I guess as oh, well, man. he's, he's yeah. a bit like Roy Batty again. He's another kind of Aryan Lucifer in a way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Aryan Lucifer. Yeah, I didn't want, uh, you know, when I first, you know, uh, Owen Wilson was being pushed on me for that role. And I, Owen Wilson didn't have enough chops for me as an actor. Hmm. And so I didn't want him. And I, but I did talk to him. I met him and all that stuff. But I told him, I said, I, you just don't have enough theater background for me. And, I, and so I can't do this. But, but they kept pushing it. And then finally they said, would you test him? Because I was testing all week. And, and I had great actors. And... Uh, and so the last test, it came in on the, end, the last day, the last hour. And before I even tested him, I did a little talk with him on camera. I asked him some questions. And I asked him a question, and his answer astounded me. Hmm. Not just the, the words, but the, the attitude. And I, and I turned around, and I whispered to the producer. I said, that's him. <laughs> we can't, you know, you've got to go there because he's got that innocence. That, hmm. uh, and there's kind of a, I don't know, not irony exactly, but just a, something, the paradox in him, the humor. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I no. mean, because he looks so kind of innocent, you can you can imagine people accepting him into their lives, and that's when it becomes, Absolutely. you know, you destructive. Have have that. I call it the rattlesnake in the Easter basket. <laughs> yeah. And, and we have that. Yeah. And it's the only film that you've directed, and presumably it's something you'd been wanting to do. How, how did you actually... Oh, yeah, that's all I wanted to do. I never wanted to write films. Hmm. That was just a way to direct, but I never... I, I'm too dumb or too delinquent or lazy or crazy to, to do what I meant to do. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to do one now. Ah. But um, uh, I, just, I just didn't know how to... You know, I'm too, too distracted and, you know, I don't, I'm not ambitious or whatever. I don't know. I've never been able to, you know, I have friends and, of course, we know people, you know. Mm. I love, you know, I'm a, a fan of, you know, whoever, Tarantino, you know, et cetera. But I just never had the, the, the balls or the muscle or the whatever to go at it, you know. Although that's what I do. I mean, I, I'm a director. Mm. I think of myself as a director. I mean, my knowledge and my education, whatever, as an actor, all that stuff is about directing. Mm. You know, I see things as a director. I make notes as a director. Hmm. But I've never, you know, now I'm, I'll be 80 years old in July, man, it's over with. Yeah. And it's like, what? <laughs> well, you can keep writing at least. Yeah, yeah. And I can, I'm, I'm shooting, I'm not thinking I'm going to shoot something. But, um, 
fact, I just talked to uh, some money people last night mm. who don't know that they're money people yet, but that's what I'm thinking of. Mm. Well, and it's interesting, you know, you said that you think as a director, so presumably, and actually looking at the screenplay of Blade Runner, there's a lot of visual description in your scripts, which I guess is something that you're not really meant to do because you're meant to leave that to the director. But I guess you are someone who thinks visually. Well, I mean, the, the scripts, I mean, movies, it's all activity. Mm. It's all physical. Everything. It's all about walking across a room mm. or falling off in a helicopter or whatever, <laughs> you know. It's always action. Yeah. I don't mean Schwarzenegger, but as opposed to a stage play, you know, mm. movies are action. Mm. They gotta be. Antonioni's action, in a way. <laughs> I mean, Love and Tour is action. Yeah. Even if it's action by inactive people who are kind of dis exactly. disenfranchised. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, if it's passive action, whatever, that's what I mean. I mean, yeah. you know, Mari and Bat is action. Mm. As opposed to I mean, it's dialogue. Yeah, it's it's got to be. Usually, I mean, with ex, you know, it's exceptions, but usually it's terse. Mm. And and I learned that from reading along. I mean, I used to write like I I tried to write screenplays. I think I was Joseph Conrad. You know, I really did. But I I tried to write like him, mm. and it was stupid. And then I and then around in the seventies, somebody turned me on to Elmore Leonard. I thought, oh, that's the way to do a screenplay. Hmm. You know, bing, bing, bing. Hmm. But also, I mean, using, you know, kind of a visual metaphor as, uh, you know, a way of describing um, entropy, for want of a better word. You know, the way that you end, or the way at least Blade Runner 29 ends, is with snow in L.A., which is such a kind of an incongruous sight. It suggests some kind of collapse of the atmosphere of the environment, you know, just in a very simple visual. Yeah, well, that, I don't think I did that. I, okay. you know, I, did, <laughs> I did end in snow, but not there exactly. Oh, sure. But, but... Um, but, but, but that, and, I mean, um, what I'm really commenting on right now is that entropy is a primary fascination for me in everything I do. Hmm. I've been involved with that concept for, for a long, long time. I mean, it's funny you mention that because that's, uh, I, 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 I wrote another science fiction screenplay that I thought was about as entropy. Huh. And I mean, in, in a poetic way, you know, mm. or an action way or whatever, but, uh, it's about breaking the entropy barrier barrier. Hmm. Um, and what happens. Another well, screenplay, another one that never got done. Everything I've ever done never gets done. Well, there might be. I mean, I made a living off things that never got done. That's how <laughs> I. I mean, without that, I, I would. I would have had to be a some other profession. Sure. Or or or, or married rich women or something. Well, twenty forty nine sets up the possibility of another sequel. I mean, it obviously hasn't made as much money as people might like. But do you think that might happen? I I don't know. It depends on. I mean, of course, if it would have made money uh, domestically, it made money foreign, I think. Okay. But, but if it would have, you know, been a blockbuster here, um, there would definitely be another one. And as it is, there probably will be. And, you know, all that brand idea and everything. And they're going to do something. And 
I, I'm fooling around with something. I've been fooling around with something for a while along those lines. And, uh, and I thought it would be, in my screenplay of, of 49, Deckard dies. Hmm. And, uh, and this one, he, in, you know, in the Michael Green version, he doesn't. And I was glad of that because I have an idea about Deckard in the future. Hmm. But that's not, but then I started working on something recently that I'm playing with that's actually a prequel. Hmm. And it's Deckard Younger. Okay. But, um, um, but I don't, I, I don't know that. I, I think they're going to, they'll probably try. Somebody's going to do it, you know? I mean, they'll do a, a Blade Runner deal. It'll be a three or a four and a mm. ten or whatever, you know, how that goes. Well, I hope you are involved at least in some of those. Oh, I don't know, man. I don't know. I, but I, I'm, I, I'm actually playing with something now that intrigues me enough that I don't know that anybody involved with Blade Runner will you know, or whether I want to even get involved because I'm going to, there's another kind of magic I like. And uh, I don't know that they like that kind. And so I might just change some names, you know, and have, have at it and another changing letters. Well, the, the same way that the story of the final dog is kind of Blade Runner with the serial numbers, you know, kind of uh, carved off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much for doing this interview. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. It's fun to talk to you. Well, thank you. (laughs) Okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye. The film Escapes, which tells the life story of Hampton Fancher up to the point of writing Blade Runner, is available to rent, download, and purchase as a DVD from grasshopperfilm.com stroke film stroke escapes. That's grasshopperfilm.com stroke film stroke escapes and is well worth a watch blade runner and blade runner 2049 are available now in a variety of formats on pretty much every platform you can think of including dvd blu-ray 4k disc and online streaming and his films the mighty quinn with denzel washington and the minus man with owen wilson are also available to buy in the uk on dvd His print collection, The Shape of the Final Dog and Other Stories, which includes the first draft of the first scene of Blade Runner 2049, in which a Blade Runner called Card tracks down Sapper at a farm in the middle of nowhere, and perhaps points in the direction that future sequels to Blade Runner by Hampton Fancher might take, is available in hardback from Blue Rider Press, and as a download for Kindles from Amazon.com. If you enjoyed my interviews with Hampton Fancher and Alex Cox, there are a great many more available to download as podcasts from my website, www.panelborders.wordpress.com, including interviews with such filmmakers as George Romero, Pak Chanuk, Michael Winterbottom, Peter Greenaway, Duncan Jones, and Michael Almereda, as well as an earlier interview with Alex Cox, in which we're discussing his film Repo Man and his interest in comic books. The Electric Sheep Film Show was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. And we'll be back on the third Wednesday in April. Next month, on the third Wednesday in March, is our sister show, Audio Dramatics, in which I interview people involved with the creation of radio plays, MP3 dramas and talking books on CD. And in that episode, I'll be talking to radio producer Dirk Mags 
about the new series of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is both an adaptation of Ian Colfer's novel And Another Thing, as well as a celebration of The Hitchhiker's franchise, which now stretches back 40 years, and also incorporates previously undramatised writing by Douglas Adams. To play out tonight's show, we have another Patrick McGowan-themed song, in the form of The Prisoner by The Clash. Thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.